Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. The Ibiza-based artist Charlotte Mensforth has had an adventurous life to say the least. She grew up near London in the Second World War, trained there, and then travelled Europe, eventually meeting the novelist Jack Beeching. Jack had lived in Formentera and San Vicente, Ibiza, and his first wife wrote the excellent book A Valley Wide, published by Martin Davis of Barbary Press. Charlotte and Jack moved to the US in the 1960s, where Jack's left-wing leanings led to the couple being kicked out of that country, as well as Greece. After visiting and painting in Ibiza, it was finally after Jack died that Charlotte made the island her permanent home. So, Charlotte, it's lovely to meet you, properly, at last. The pleasure is entirely mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been really looking forward to meeting you because um, you've had a very fascinating life, as far as I can see. Well, you're, you're, you're living here in Ibiza, near Santillaria, um, and obviously you're an artist, and I'd like to talk to you about your art, but first of all, to talk to you about yourself, if that's okay. Can we go right back to the start of your life? Could you tell me where you were born and a little bit about your childhood? I was born in Glorious Twickers. Right. Twickenham. Yes. Twickenham on Thames. Yes, 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 yes. Just before the war broke out, I had a very beautiful Welsh mother called Gwendolyn from a very, very ancient Welsh family. What a lovely name. And my father came from a Megbrus family, Yorkshire. When those days you married and then you did all the things that you normally you did all the things that your husband said and he was um, I won't say too much but he was not an easy man. Right. So so your childhood what was that like growing up? You were growing up during this war or afterwards? It was yes it was. Um, I have very good memory. I remember a lovely garden. We had a house going down to the Thames at Teddington. It was lovely. But then everything changed because the war came. And uh, we had organised a dugout onto the garage. And we used to wait. I had first a, a gas mask, I remember, to go to the little kindergarten in case there was a gas attack. And then we used to wait for the sirens. And when the siren came in the middle of the night, you went down underground. School was finished. And then I don't remember too much about the first attack, which was the Lufthansa, but I do remember what we called the doodlebugs. Right. Does that mean anything yes, to you? Yes, they, they were um, rockets, rocket propellers. No, that was the V2s. These oh. were the V1s, and they were planes without pilots. Right. And they were, we were in a direct line. Up the Thames. Yeah. So they came in over the Thames. And I was evacuated. I couldn't stay there. And it was, I remember, the, uh, uh, nearly a direct hit. It was, it was, um, 
I still remember the sound of them, you know what I mean? It was a, not an easy life. He was um, a difficult man and he was um, brought up with the idea that money was God. Yes. And so that was the way that I started life. So was it quite a sort of strict uh, household that you grew up in? <gasps> Yes, my mother was a darling, unfortunately, but her father was away a lot of the time. But for instance, you know, you weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed to speak at table. Things like all those things. Do you know what I mean? Your father said, turn the radio off, you know, and all these things. What kind of schools did you go to growing up? Private. Right. Private schools. But after the war, they were pretty ropey. Mm. They, a lot of the staff, you know what I mean? They, they'd either died or they hadn't had the opportunity... So it was a school that had a nice accent and all these things you were supposed to have. And I was crazy about ponies, so that took my... <laughs> <laughs> and they had ponies there? I didn't have a pony, no, no, to my great chagrin, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was too complicated, but I was crazy about ponies and reading pony books and all that, and going riding whenever I could save up some money, because I was not very good at school. I could have been, but I couldn't have bothered. I wasn't interested. <laughs> But one of the things I was always good at was painting and drawing. Okay. And my mother was good at it too, but she, darling, you know, she did just did little drawings. She, she, when she was brought out, there was no idea that anybody could actually go to art school. Well, maybe somebody in London might be, you know, a woman. So did the schools uh, encourage your Yes, art? I was very, very lucky. We had a very, very nice... Um, art teacher, Duckworth, her name was Duckworth, I think they were publishers, anyway she liked me and she thought I was, had talent, she realised I came from a difficult situation and uh, she took me up to London, I remember, to the National Gallery and we went and looked at beautiful paintings mm. and she said I ought to try, what did I want to do, I didn't really know, ponies was seemed to be the first thing but I realised, no. <laughs> And uh, she helped me get a portfolio together to go and present at an art school. My father didn't really approve. I went with my mother's help and introduction. I went to Kingston School of Art. And it was actually, I think in some ways it was very good because there, many of the staff there were actually taught in London anyway. They were RAs and all sorts of things. And so I stayed there and I did the fine art course for four years. I finally had a little session and I lived uh, on a barge on the Thames at Kingston Bridge with somebody. With, with, uh, in those days we were all terribly innocent. What was it like um, doing this, this, this course? Was it fun? I mean, what, what, or was it really just regimented and hard work? Very, very hard work. It really was. The first two years we did a bit of everything. We did sculpture, we did uh, design, and then you uh, did two days a week live drawing, one day a week general composition. I can't remember. And the amount of money they allocated was geared to the success of the students. And so we were really, really pushed. And at the end of each term, we had very intense exams that you had to do a still art drawing, an architectural drawing, an anatomy drawing, you know, and we had a classical education, there was no idea of doing anything abstract. Would you say it's given you the, um, the, the basic 
skills. Gave me the education, which yeah. people after me, I should say probably two or three years after me, joining up in art school, they start to do happenings and installations and things. And I had the classical training, and I think I went, but I did, mm. and I did well. And then halfway through, I think I was really getting bored. And I remember I went with a friend, we didn't tell my parents, we went on a bus and we went to Paris. <laughs> this friend from art school and me, and I thought to myself, this is, I don't want to stay in England, this is what I want to do, you know, it was just, it was, <gasps> I was sent on an exchange to Paris. And it was this sudden revelation that actually other places took art seriously. They were very interested in what I did, and this, I think, gave me the, the, the click. Mm. And then after that, four years in Kingston, and I knew that I couldn't really earn much money of the sort of paintings I did. And I went to the Central School, and I did a course in graphics and printing. It was interesting, and I met all sorts of... Suddenly, it was a different world. And my father paid for an, uh, a flat in London, which I shared. And so anyway, the, the big break came was that when I was at uh, the Central, I met a lovely Greek girl, and uh, her husband was with Reuters, and she was posted there. He was posted in London, and she said, you must come to Greece. I can't go to Paris, I'd like to go to Greece. Just to go to Greece like that in those days was not that easy. To, I mean, if you were rich, you went to an, the airport, you got an aeroplane. But I certainly, I had my savings, which I put on one side from my London transport postal. They paid me a hundred and something pounds. And I hadn't seen it up, but it was all done, etc. And I had a little bit of savings from my time at J. Walter Thompson. So anyway, my friend, my Greek friend, she said, you go to the Haymarket, and I think you will find there is a boat that will take you. Anyway, we got to Brindisi, which was really seedy in those days, and there was the boat at the end of the harbour in the evening, and I got on with my luggage, and it all sort of started to look really, I mean, it's on my own, you know what I mean? Got on the boat, I was shown my cabin, which I shared, down below somewhere, and I remember going to sleep and woke up and I went up on deck and I could not believe my eyes. Suddenly, there was the sea and it was navy blue. <gasps> I just couldn't believe it. You know, because it isn't even this colour here. It's this Greek colour which is a sort of extraordinary depth. We stopped at Corfu and my friend Neobi, her name was, was waiting at Piraeus, and she had arranged for me to stay in two institutions which had been set up by the Greek government. They were big old houses, one was on Mykonos and one was on the island of Idra, where if you were a bona fide artist or student, you could stay and be given a studio and pay absolutely nothing. That's wonderful. It was absolute. And then I went back to Piraeus and I didn't see Neobi and I got on the next boat to Idra. Anyway, I got off and went to the, uh, this beautiful old house um, at the, on the port. 
slightly run-down house, but a beautiful palace overlooking the port here. I mean, I think it was one of these big houses here. There's nothing else on the island. There's no cars. It's just this island. It's absolutely magnificent. And some of the architecture is actually Venetian. And I started to fall in love with Greece. It was absolutely so, so beautiful. So, so beautiful. And I swam and I got out my paints and I drew. It was then that I started to notice that there were every day, they had nothing to do on this island except for go swimming, write their books if they had the inspiration to do so, um, paint their pictures should they want to, um, and they used to all go down to the meet in the cafe, which is there. And so Sylvia didn't drink very much and I didn't very much. We used to sit and I'd say, who's that person? And she said, I think he's called Leonard, Leonard Cohen. Young poet. Oh, who's that? There was, anyway, there were all these very famous people they used to sit around. But the days drifted by, you know what I mean? We didn't have only one room in the house had electricity. We had to get water up from a well and all this. Anyway, the weather starts to get break up. It was um, coming up to October and the boats wouldn't come. And it was, it's got quite a tough winter in Greece. Charlotte tells us about a rather unconventional relationship she had with a man named John. He was a fascinating um, and lovely guy and we got on very well, but he never said very much, but I started, I was very innocent in those days. And it is a tradition of thousands of years that they, the men go around with boys. He was gay as all get out. And he had lots of boyfriends and Greek beautiful boys that came around, etc., etc. And I was included a little bit and it sort of, I don't know, I found it fascinating but slightly upsetting when he was, when we were together, he was such a lovely person, I think I got too fond of him. And when there was all these Greek boys coming to the house, you know, it was really upset me. Anyway, I went and I decided that I needed to go back to England. I'd been in Greece two years, it's all getting too much, I need to go back to England. So, I went back to England and by chance, the girl who was sharing with my friend in Baker Street for six pounds a week was leaving and I took over her place. And while I was there, I started to make hats and I made some money. And I got a job with a group of people from Kingston Art School who'd set up in a sort of uh, garage somewhere in Ealing a workshop because the BBC used to make its own props and they were getting too big and they needed a workshop that made props for Doctor Who. And so I joined this group of people who were making props for Doctor Who. All these sort of dragons and things. So anyway, I was with, with them and I rather enjoyed it and they were a very entertaining lot. And it was obviously going to be something that was going to take off, wasn't it? I mean, that was in the early stages. And suddenly, I had no internet in those days. I had letters from John and he said, you know, I still think that I would like to be with you. I'm coming to London. So he came and joined me in London and he said, listen, Charlotte, this thing that we always said we'd do together, why don't we do it? I've changed my life. I'm getting bored with boys. Why don't you and I, you come back with me to Athens, I've still got the house, and we will go overland to Bangkok. 
we'd do the whole thing, because in those days you could go through Afghanistan and the whole thing, so and we'll go to India together and I've, I've saved up some money, you've got some money, why don't we do it? So I sort of slightly, I said, okay. So we got back, back to Athens and his house and he had some savings and started to plan this trip. But immediately got back to Athens, one of the boyfriends came around and it was the same scene. And he was spending his money and I thought, what the hell am I doing? By chance, John introduced me to a couple of girls and one of the girls was called Butterfly. And she was leaving to go back to San Francisco where she was Italian when she was born in San Francisco. And she was leaving to go back to the States. She'd had a time, she'd lived on one of the islands, she'd had adventures like we all had. She was fantastic and there was another Australian girl but she was having a farewell party and she said, Charlotte, come to my party. Well, I went to that evening party. Lots of people all going to say goodbye to Butterfly and there was John having a lovely time with a boy in front of everybody. It was that sort of party. And I was really, really upset. And Butterfly said, what are you staying here for? She said, uh, you know, um, if you're not happy, why don't you come with me? I said, well, I haven't got any money. I didn't have any money. She said, come on. She said, I've got the boat. We're going from Piraeus to um, Barcelona. And somebody's told me that from Barcelona, you can get a boat to the Canaries and it's real cheap there. We can go and stay there and enjoy ourselves. And then you see, you see what happens. You come with me. I said, well, I haven't got any money. She said, oh, dear, I know Peter over there is an American. She said, she'll lend you $30. He lent me $30. I went back to the house, didn't say anything to John. I picked up my passport, my mother's mirror, hand mirror, some what we used to call fancy dress, old fashioned um, clothes we used to dress up with, pair of shoes. And the next morning we were down at the port of Piraeus. We got our tickets. So anyway, if you think about it, it was under the dictatorship in those days, that was 1964. And I was really in a state, and I think I remember I cried the whole trip <laughs> on the boat. <laughs> so anyway, we arrived in Barcelona, and we went to the shipping office. The butterfly, very American, she knew all about it. We went to the shipping office to get our tickets. And I hadn't realised, and she hadn't realised, that it was coming up to Christmas. And in those days, you couldn't go to a travel agency. You had to go to an official agency run by the government, the government boats. There wasn't anything else. It was dictatorship. Mm. And we went to these two government agencies. No tickets. So Butterfly said, well, you know, there's no problem, I don't think. Um, I'll tell you what we do. We'll get on a train and we'll uh, go to Cadiz, which from Barcelona is quite a, lo a long way. So we got on the train, and it was funny, there seemed to be one carriage that was completely empty, but it had something written up in Spanish on it. Anyway, we found some seats in this completely empty carriage and sat down, and we'd taken two oranges with us, I think, something like that, and we sat down like this for the night trip, and the seats were wooden, and suddenly, <gasps> the whole of the Spanish army got on. We hadn't understood it. Carriage was reserved to the Spanish army. 
they couldn't believe it that two girls had got in onto their carriage. And the, the captain came along and sort of waved, waved at us and went away. <gasps> it was absolutely horrendous. They teased us, they wanted to feed us, they this and that. And then finally, thanks to our tears or whatever it was, we stopped in the middle of the night somewhere and I was getting just, I mean, they were, nothing, anything really would have happened, but you know what I mean, it was for two girls like us. And one of them said, come on, come with us. And he took us to the, um, off the train to the station bar and they bought us cafe con leche and something other and, look and looked off. They said, we look after you. So we got off at Cadiz, went to Sevilla. No, that's right, went to Sevilla. And then we got a bus to Cadiz and we went and inquired about the boats going to the Canary Islands. And my money was going down. And they said, yes, there is a boat coming in and your fare to the Canaries is three days will be, uh, I think it was $13, all found. But they said it doesn't come for five days. So we had five days in Cadiz waiting for the boat to come in. We found a very cheap hotel and we used to get up very late in the morning because then we didn't have to eat breakfast because it was expensive and we just had one meal a day. And we went regularly to a rather nice restaurant where they used to chat with us and it was a very, very cheap menu. And one day the waiter came very nice with us and he had a kitten in his hands and we were the softest animals. And uh, he said, look, look, come, come and see. And he took us to the kitchen. And just by the cooker, there was the, the cook and the Spanish family, the Ander, they were all Andalusians, and there was the mummy cat with five kittens. And they said, here we are, you take two kittens. <laughs> and we said, no, 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 we don't want two kittens, we're going off on a journey, we can't possibly take two kittens. Anyway, we walked out of that restaurant with a cardboard box. Did you make it to the uh, to the islands? Well, we managed to spin out our time in Cadiz, and the cats we hid in the hotel bedroom. They were tiny, absolutely grey, absolutely adorable. We went to the we used to go every day to the shipping office. So the ship will be here tomorrow anyway. On the last uh, the day before we were due to leave. We went to the shipping office and there was a very nice lady who was yours, spoke a bit of English. She said, I'll tell you what, she'd seen what we were like. We had no money. She said, you get on the ship there, I'll tell you which cabin, and you can sleep the night before on the ship. So we got on the ship the night before with the two kittens. We hid them in our cabin, but we knew there were going to be other people. It was a very much a, a junky sort of boat. And the following, we slept the night. And the following morning, we saw all these passengers coming on because that was when they all had to check with the person, but we'd already got our place. And onto the boat came a rather square-looking man in a, a tweed suit with a waistcoat, <laughs> carrying a rucksack and talking lots of English, and seemed to know Spanish. And he was saying, I used to live in a visa and it's getting impossible, there's far too many people there. And then he, then he looked and said, come and have a coffee with us. He was sitting talking to a bunch of chums at the, at the bar. And 
and he came and had a coffee with us, a street to a coffee. What are you two girls doing here? You know, where were you? You look a long way from home. And we just said, well, we're going to the Canary Islands. And he said, well, so am I. He said, I'm a writer. I live in Ibiza, but I need to get away from the winter, and I'm going to the Canary Islands. I think it's a nice place. Never been. What about you girls? So we started telling him about things, and we said, uh, he's asked us more, and then we, I don't know how it came out, but we said, we've got two kittens, and he said, well, I have a feeling that you're going to get into trouble on the boat, but anyway, never mind, you know what I mean, and uh, so we went back to our cabin. We were in our, we, went to, we opened the door of our cabin, and there was another suitcase open on the bed, nobody there, and obviously a few things strewn and nobody in the cabin. Two minutes later, knock at the door, and it was Jack with the purser. And uh, Jack said, you now have somebody else in your cabin, and she's just been up there complaining that there are rats <laughs> in the cabin. And Jack looked and he said, I think you've got two kittens. This is the person. He says that I'm afraid you, uh, this, you can't keep the kittens in, the, in the, the cabin. And so there was a lot of Spanish went on. And the, being in those, they, they said, okay, they said, I tell you what, you can keep them with, we've got a place that's penned off. You can keep them over the trip in the ship's stores. And so we got talking to Jack. And he said, I'm going away to write some poetry. Somebody's left me, lent me some money. But he said, I'm going to Gran Canaria. Um, you're, the boat was calling in at Tenerife. And he said, I've heard that Tenerife's a bit of a lousy island. I don't think you're going to enjoy it, but I've got to get off there. And uh, I've got to stay the night there. And I should be getting the boat across to Gran Canaria the following day. So we said, okay, so we, we all got off the boat three days later. And uh, Jack said, I couldn't, he spoke a lot of Spanish. He said, I think I'm, I could, we'll, I'll find you a hotel to stay. And he found us two little rooms on the roof of an old building, just built, built up there where we could stay. And he said, listen, I'm going to take you girls. You don't know as if the food on this boat was absolutely horrendous. Even we were hungry, but it was awful. And he said, I'll take you to a nice restaurant, but I'm going to go to the uh, next island tomorrow morning. So we had a beautiful meal. He gave us a beautiful meal. We had steak and said goodbye. And he left his address. And we left our address. And uh, it was Viajes Marsans. You just went to a post-restaurant address in those days. You know what I mean? And off we went. Well, Butterfly and I started to have a most awful time. We had all sorts of adventures which I won't dilate upon, but the Spanish boys in those days, they couldn't go out with Spanish girls, you know, they were heavily chaperoned, so two foreign girls were absolute mark. We were just pestered and pestered and pestered, and finally we were invited to go somewhere we didn't know where it was and we anyway they were paid very correctly nothing happened but butterfly and i said to ourselves we can't stay here and i went to collect my mail and there was a little postcard and it said i found a lovely place to stay why don't you two girls come over to gran canaria this is the name of the village hope to see you so a couple of days later butterfly and i got the boat and we went over to gran canaria mm.
How long did you stay there? Three months. Right. And so that was the start of. Was that was that the start of? Did you feel yourself falling in love with him at that yes. point? Yes. Yes. Yeah. To me, he seemed a, a rather elderly gent because he was fifteen years older than me. But at that age, it seems a lot. Mm. But after a bit. How old were you then? Twenty. Twenty-six. Okay. Yeah, fifteen years. Well, all of us, so we arrived, and he was living on a little shack on a beach that he'd met a whole lot of people, and they said, you can stay here for nothing. And it was a little shack on the beach. The weather is so warm, the Canary Islands. And he was busy writing, and he'd got to know all sorts of people. And he'd got to know a pop group that had come with uh, the four of them to play in the local hotel. So we had all sorts of adventures, but he told me straight from the start that he was married and he had two children and he'd just gone away from the winter and etc. The marriage wasn't working out well. He'd been, the children were growing up, but he still felt very responsible and this was just a, a time that he was having in the Canaries and he didn't know what was going to happen in the future, but he was quite honest about it, didn't he? And his family was in Ibiza still? His wife was still in San Vicente. Uh-huh. In that house. Mm. Well, the pop group used to play really with it music, the Beatles. The Spaniards had never heard of the Beatles. And it was absolutely took, you know, they couldn't believe it. And we used to go along and butterfly now on this one evening. We said, come on, we're going to dress up. So we dressed up from these portobello clothes that I bought from uh, my town living in London. I collected and we both dressed up and went with Jack to this hotel where the pop group was playing and Butterfly and I started to dance and everything got out of hand and suddenly somebody put a hand on my shoulder and they said, you've got to leave, we were thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a good party. Well, it was at the hotel and they'd never seen anything like that. It was very, very simple in those days, you know what I mean? It was a... Anyway, um... Jack then got a letter from Ibiza and his wife had decided to come and join him and they were going to make a, uh, do their best to get together. And so um, I, and I said, well listen, it's no problem, I go back to England. But he was, to me, he was also a very fascinating people because he was a, a published writer he knew everybody in London, his best friend was Doris Lessing, you know, it was all this, it was for me, it was, I couldn't believe it, you know, all these people he knew, he had one of the best agents in London, and he was just about to go off to New York to talk to his agent there, he was busy with a commission for a book, he was, uh, so interesting were the people that he knew of a world that I had just sort of only read about, you know what I mean, but he used to write, books for children, historically researched books for children, and he was busy finishing one. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do to give you a stop. I'm going to send the manuscript, and it was a book on the Crimean War. No, it wasn't. It was a book on the mutiny on the bounty. And he said, I'm going to be sending it in, and I will write to my publisher, and when you get back to London, you just say, by the way, do you have any illustrating work to do? And I think that the two things come together you'll get a job, so that's what I did. I went back to London. I got the job. Well, to cut a long story short, the family came out, 
and I got the first uh, boat going out to the Canary Islands. Could you summarise then what happened in the next few years? Did you stay together permanently? He had found a most beautiful place. I can show the photographs if you want. Just live in a valley which had been abandoned by the peasants because there wasn't enough water. And you had to actually walk up this valley to get the water. And it was in a valley. It's not beautiful like here. It's volcanic, but it opened on the Atlantic. And so we were there being very happy having a honeymoon and he was busy writing his book of whatever it was. And I was doing the illustrations for the Mutiny on the Bounty, which he, I took out the work to do. The publisher didn't know that Jack and I were living in the same house. <laughs> <laughs> Till all of a sudden, coming across the field, was the owner and he said, Senor, I've got some wonderful news. I've managed to sell the whole valley to a Belgian uh, man who is interested and he's going to put up all these beautiful villas. Speculation. So it was the whole valley. And he said, there's no problem. He's interested in the art and you can stay. So after much thought of what we would do, we didn't really, it was a bit far out. Neither of us really took to the Canary Islands. Have you been? No. Madeira, that's all. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So we said, come on, let's go back to Greece. I spoke Greek in those days, and Jack had never been to Greece, and I said, it's a lovely place, we can find somewhere, it's a good, fairly good climate, it's a bit cold in the winter, but let's go back, and you can write your book in Greece. And so we got on a boat to Athens. We found a, a very nice place to live on a, a room near a farm on the island of Polos, which is just next door, very near Athens. And everything was fine. And Jack had, from many, many years ago, Jack was a communist, Colin communist, because all the writers were communists. And he had a great friend who was an American, who was a Rhodes Scholar. And he had a Greek wife, he acquired a Greek wife, Tom, from North Dakota. And he came to visit in Athens and he, Jack said, you know, I'm not getting on too well financially. What was happening was that the price of living was coming up in places like Greece and Spain and he relatively didn't really make that much or enough on a commission book to keep you. You before you did, but it was... And Tom said, I tell you what, Jack, um, he was from North Dakota, he'd been... Um, in very bad trouble under McCarthy, but he was okay. And he said, I can get you a job at the University of North Dakota as Poetry in Residence. What about that? You can do it just as a temporary job for, for a year, and you can make some money. Great opportunity. I said to Jack, I don't know how we're going to manage. Are you going to be okay? Because he had a bad chest from after the war. It has a, you know, North Dakota's near the Canadian border. It has a really bad winter. But he said, oh, it'll be all right. We'll, we'll manage. And the other problem was that we weren't married. So Jack got a visa as a teacher and he, they said, Tom said, no, it'll be okay. You just come as a, you come as a tourist. They're never gonna check it out. So I went as a tourist and we found a nice place to stay. Very nice through friends and Jack started his post as poet in residence. And he was immediately a great success. He was such a character and he was very knowledgeable. And he used to say to me, how can I teach these people about poetry? They haven't even, you know, read a book. I mean, they're right off the court field. I mean, you know, it's really out in 
out in nowhere. But in the evenings, we had an apartment near the university. It was actually more or less in the dry belt. You weren't even supposed to drink. But in the evenings, the students used to come round and talk to him. And we used to have, they used to drink 2% beer round about. But it was the time of the Vietnam War. Well, Jack used to get, suddenly he started getting all these phone calls from his students. And they say, excuse me, professor, what did I get? What mark did, what mark did I get in my last theme? remember what you got, I think maybe you did okay. They said, why do you want to know? I mean, is it that important? They said, yes, if we get three bad marks in our themes in a row, we are liable to be go on the draft to Vietnam. So Jack said, well, okay, so as far as that goes, there's no problem with me. You all get first, whatever you are. I don't care. You, get, you just guarantee you get first. These kids, they didn't want to go to Vietnam. And he started to mention it a little bit. And Tom was known, although Tom towed the line, but he had been in serious trouble with McCarthy. He'd been ostracized, he couldn't get a job for lockdown. One evening, we were there sitting late at night with a particular student um, who was very left-wing, also with Jack, who adored Jack, and there was a knock at the door. So I went to the door, and on the door was uh, two big guys. And we're talking to Miss Mensforth. Can we see your passport? Please, you come with us. You're going to the Canadian border. We can't have people living in sin on this nice country, and uh, you can no longer stay in the United States. And Jack came out, and he said, what's this? She said, he said, Miss um, Mensworth is coming with us tonight to the Canadian border. She is personal and on ground in the United States. And Jack said, no, not to judge her. Wait a minute. Unfortunately, we knew somebody who was a DA, and he phoned up him up, it was very late at night, and the guy said, don't move, tell these guys, that you don't go anywhere, I'm coming straight over. And he said, okay, and he talked to these guys, and he said, she's not going anywhere, except we've got to see a lawyer. Well, that's, that's, these are serious things in the United States. Anyway, the thing was that they had not liked Jack's attitude, but they did not want to expel him, because if they did, that was a tick against uh, how nasty the United States was as regard politics. They didn't want to get involved in giving a push to somebody who had a job in the United States for political reasons. And so they had found a reason. They found we weren't married and they could get me rid of me on moral reasons. And maybe they thought he would follow you. They knew he would. Right. That was the only reason they did it. So fortunately on the ex-communist uh, network, I got on an aeroplane. Um, the DA said we could fight it, but he said it's not worth it. You've got haven't got much salary. It just isn't worth. And the weather was getting bad. We went back to Greece, and I'm, both loved it. And Jack had found us a, a little house that he was going to buy, and he had all his property, his manuscripts, and everything. I had all my paintings there. And I was walking into this little village, and suddenly a lady said to me, Kiria, madam, they need you at the police office. And we went to the little police office, and there was a completely different person. And he said, you have three days to leave. So, um, Charlotte, we've heard some really interesting stories about your past and your upbringing, and your, your history in, in post-war Europe and your travels. And what I'd like to do now is to move us on to Ibiza. 
Well, yes, I realise that we're sitting here possibly for an Ibiza audience maybe, but anyway I had to come out and explain a little bit about it. And in, I think, when I was uh, telling about the past, I met on this battered Spanish boat going to the Canaries, Jack Beeching, and he had been living in Ibiza and had decided, and this was in 1964, that it was all getting too much. But the stories about Ibiza started to come out and it was a very, very small society in those days. There were very few people that you actually wanted to talk to. I mean, there were the lovely Ibisenks, but uh, that was another world. There were possibly rich people from Madrid, but it was just this group of foreigners. And Jack, who was a great raconteur, started telling me stories about the people who were there and the jokes and the things they did. And it was a very international community. And they, a lot of them lived in Ibiza, but there were writers, there were painters, there were people who made scandals, there were people, somebody got murdered, there were all sorts of things. And I, of course, was absolutely fascinated because I had been living on this island of Idra in Greece, and it was much smaller, but it was a similar sort of Ibiza. It was a place where artists and painters went and it was the reason that the island became very famous because one of the people who came at that time, who was my neighbour, not famous at the time, was Leonard Cohen. In the same way that Ibiza was this enchanting island, but it was put on the map really by artists and painters in the 30s that came from Paris who said this is a wonderful place and it wasn't anything to do with um, going out partying or anything. It was an island you came to write the definitive novel or to meet people or to actually find yourself, I think. So what, um, what brought Jack to Ibiza? What was it that fascinated him about Ibiza and, that, and, then, and then in turn fascinated you? Um, he was somebody who, he'd been a little bit, I think, taken up, a little bit out of his age, really. He was brought up in Sussex, and that was, um, if you know, it was the literary centre of England before the wars, wasn't it? There was Virginia Woolf and all these people. And because he was very... Um, what should I say, he made connections even when he was at school and he actually met the people who had actually known all these people in Sussex. He was fascinating and he was slightly taken up as a sort of um, possible great poet because he was, as a very young man he was writing poetry. But then the war came along, but his great friend was a very, very famous lady called Nancy Cunard. She made a great scandal um, just before the war by having a black lover. She was part of the um, Cunard dynasty, but I think whether she, I don't remember exactly whether she'd been thought to be illegitimate or what, I don't know, but Jack met her. And he, she had said to, I think it was Nancy who said, there was a wonderful island that you should go and see because Jack had been in the war and he had a bad chest. 
and the climate in England was not agreeing with him and he wanted to get away to somewhere dry. And on the grapevine, and this was known before the war, the place to go for a good climate was Formentera. Right. So he upsticked and went to Formentera with his wife and the two children and was uh, had a very, very cheap house there and adored it, and the, but there was no uh, electricity, you know, or all like that. And he stayed there for three years, but he decided that there were actually, he said, I woke up and I found there were eight people I didn't know sitting on my terrace. I think there were too many people coming to Formentera. And they came across to Ibiza to have a look round and they found San Vicente. And this was about 1959, something like that, I think, when there was no road. And the book maybe you've read, A Valley Wide. Yes, great book. Is about that. So, when I met Jack, he was a great, as I say, storyteller, and I started to get really being interested in all these incredible characters that lived in the life, but he didn't want to go back, and I didn't want to really go back and live in the shadow of a life he'd had here before, because Ibiza was not like it is now. It was a small place where people knew, you know, and he didn't want to come back. He said the place was changing too fast, they built an airport, and etc. And I was fascinated by this sort of a place because of my experience in Idra. So this was the beginning of the first seeds that were sown in my mind that Ibiza maybe it would be an interesting place to visit one day. So when did you end up coming here? Well, Jack had always kept up with his uh, many of his friends, literary friends. There was a when we went to um, the United States on this <laughs> visit when he was poet in residence, we stayed in uh, New York with Bernie Bishop, who had been here as a he'd been a champion boxer, I think, but he was here in Ibiza writing uh, the definitive novel. We stayed with connections from Ibiza. We stayed in New York because there was a lot of in those days a lot of Americans here. And uh, the sort of seed was sown, and then Jack was, as I say, was in correspondence with quite a lot of them, and out of the blue, I can't remember where we were, we were living in Rome, he suddenly got a letter from this painter who lived in Daltville called Leslie Grimes. He was a wonderful character, and he was a great friend of Jack's, and he had come to Abisa about the same time as Jack, and he left his big job at what was called the Evening Star in London, which was one of the most famous evening newspapers, and he sold the paper by his cartoons. He brought out a cartoon every evening, and it was called All My Own Work but he was a fantastic character, and he said to Jack and I, would we like to, or he didn't know me, would Jack like to come and spend the summer with him in Ibiza because there was a job as a teacher going, he knew Jack was probably short of money, and we could go and stay with him in the old palace. So this is what we did, and it's the big old house, which is the house above what is the Musée Pouget. It's the next house up. 
And it was there that we got to re-see people. We saw how Abusa was changing. But at that time, many people came up to Grimey's studio. They always come for a gin and tonic. Grimey was always there. He'd be painting one painting in the morning and another in the afternoon. He made an enormous amount of money. He knew lots of people, didn't speak a word of Spanish. They all adored him. And Jack still knew people. And we sat in a cafe one day and we met Elmer de Horing. Elmer was the great, he painted imitation false Modigliani, you name it, and he made lots and lots of money by selling um, imitation great paintings. But at the time when we met him, he was living with a, a young man and he decided to offload, I think, some money or something, and he opened a gallery. And it's just near the, it was just near where the old fish market is. And it came up and they said, would I like to have an exhibition there? So they were drawings and things and, and darling everybody came. It was a wonderful occasion and Elmer was there with a, an open chest and uh, I think a ruby dangling here and was talking to Jack. But anyway, I did very well and sold a lot of little things. And then we went back, we left, we didn't want to stay, but that was my first stay here. But I had a, a real taste of what Abusa was like. But the thing was for me that my first um, love of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean was um, Greece. Yes. And Greece then was much more simple. And to me, Abusa became an acquired taste. Greece knocked me over, and it was really very, very, very simple and so stunningly beautiful. And so, as I say, I got to love Ibiza and see what it could give you, but it was, it, it's one of the things that the first love is always a very strong one, I think. And you, you've come and gone from the island over the years, have you? Yes, I was in Ibiza doing my, my painting in this very nice apartment, which People said it had been the interior, had been designed by Bronner and said, Jack said, yes, I know it was, you're always bumping your knees. Anyway, I remember, um, I realised that Abisa did have possibilities because I was there on my own, there was a knock at the door and there was a very uh, nimble, educated Spaniard. Uh, he said, where's uh, Grimey? So, so I said, well, he's not here in the morning. He said, oh, he said he promised he'd sell me some paintings. He came barging in and there were a few Grimeys there. And he looked round and he said, oh, who did those? I said, um, I like that one, that one, I like one. I think they bought four. And he said, I'll be back on the Tuesday with the money. So that was my first beginning of sales of a visa. Yes. And we had a little bit of capital. And we bought two chambres de bon in Paris. Absolutely one of the most lovely things we ever did, I think. They were up um, 112 stairs. They were in... Uh, a part of Paris which has now become very chic on a canal, but at that time it was not chic at all. And we weren't there all the year round, it was tiny, but I met wonderful contacts, wonderful people, and that was the point when my career really started to take off. We were all having adventures, people still are, but I think the adventure that I was chasing was my feeling that I wanted to, my knowledge that I wanted to paint. We went to London, I got married, and I took just by house, just by, this Jack said, come on, go around the galleries. 
So I went with a portfolio of my work to a gallery called the Medici Gallery, just off Bond Street, and I had three exhibitions there, including a cabinet minister coming, and that started me with a, a solid way of beginning and been suddenly managing to take myself seriously. Jack was such a help in the way of knowing how you work as an artist. He used to get up in the morning, he'd have his breakfast and he would go to his desk and work and that was sacred. And I, I had been a bit of a haphazard worker but I suddenly realised if you're going to get anywhere in your art you've got to have a very, very strong discipline in what you did. And this is what I learned from him, from the, the way of, and that art is important. You can put all the other things aside. Family is important too, but art is the dominating spirit that is going to carry along and bring fulfillment, we hope. I met a lovely Canadian lady who was living in Ottawa and she said, I think I can sell your paintings. I think they're absolutely wonderful. Please send them to me. And this was what I did. I had a lot of exhibitions in Canada and sold really well. And it was our finances. I had been living in Mallorca because of the part of the long story that Jack wasn't well. There was good medicine there. He was on uh, dialysis for the last six years of his life. But anyway, he died. I stayed on. But I had this feeling that I needed to change, to get away from memories, so you know what I mean, you don't want to live with the past. And Martin Davis, who I'd never heard of me, rang me up in Parma and said, did I know anything about San Vicente? And I said, well, not so much, it wasn't me, but it was my husband who lived there. And Martin said, oh, I do want to know more, and I suggested that he contacted Jack's son, John, who was living in England and uh, had been brought up in San Vicente. So this is what Martin did. They discovered that John's uh, mother, the previous wife to me, had written this manuscript. Martin got in contact with her and the book A Valley Wide was published. And I came across and I sat down in a bar with Martin. And I said, you know, what am I doing in Parma? I belong here. Let, let's now switch, and I'd like to talk to you about your art, if that's okay. As a, you, you wrote to me um, a couple of days ago, and you said, I'm a painter, this is what makes my world tick. <laughs> Which I thought was lovely. I wonder if you could just say a few words about why, you know, why does painting inspire you so much? Why is it part of the core of your being that makes your world tick? I think that the thing that, uh, one of the elements of what inspires you is either to know or to find out what you are good at. You usually don't, I think, persevere if you know you just, it's not your talent. Sometimes you can discover it, but for me, as a very little girl, my mother used to draw me pictures too, because there weren't toys and things, it was drawing the wall, my mother, and I always had this capacity, it seemed as if it was no problem, of making a little drawing and being able to interpret what I saw onto a piece of paper. This is a sort of, and I think it was the thing of 
the realization that you were in charge, that you could do something that other people did. You had no reason to know why you could do it. You just could, like some people could see further than other people, or some people can uh, sing. And I just had this capacity to put down what I saw on a piece of paper. And then when I went to school, I was really not interested in anything very much. As I told you, as a young girl, like many uh, girls, particularly in England, I had a passion for ponies, was never allowed one, but I was always able to draw them. And I had a very, very uh, nice art teacher at this private school who said, I think you ought to try what you're going to do. And I said, I've no idea. And she said, I think we can, I'll help you put a portfolio together and uh, you go to art school. And as I told you, I was accepted. And I think it's a continuation of being able to um, do something. It's both your craft, like anything in dance, you find that you can uh, perform things in, in art too. But it's also, I think, um, a road of knowing how to fulfill yourself. Where are you going in life? What are you doing? And somehow it's a center. If you can put down something on a page, on a, a canvas, you feel you've actually achieved something every day. And I didn't really, in the beginning, take myself very seriously. You know, I just thought, well, that was something I could do. And then I'd have people who say, oh, Charlotte, I like that or that, and I realized that obviously I had something that other people didn't possess. I don't know what other artists think. I think it's this thing, when you talk to artists, I think we all have this secret sort of chalice that we, we hold and we nurture, and we know that we're going on this long voyage, and it's never going to be the same. Sometimes we have failures, sometimes we have successes, but it's an adventure. And it's this sense of adventure and excitement that you have. Oh, I'm going to do this painting now. How is it going to come out? It's like a tightrope. Is it going to work? Is it not? And it is this that I think this feeling of being able to express yourself and you have finally the technique and the know-how how to do it that keeps art is a sublime occupation. It's a sort of, I think, for many people who are artists, it's a religion, really. Can, can you describe your creative process? I think it's changed with the years, because in the beginning I was trained in this way. I was very, very reliant on having the object in front of me. I needed, I didn't seem to be able to do it if the object wasn't there, so I spent many, many long hours many, many long hours. It is really a very, very hard toil to be able to be an academic artist. So if you went to the Royal Academy schools, you spent three years apparently drawing from uh, Greek casts of the, and I think we've moved on from that. But you do have to have um, a very solid um, education in the ability to draw and uh, interpret if you're going to paint like I am. Maybe if you're going to do abstracts, well, you can do it in a different way. I don't know, but I've always had everything very much based on what I see. And I think with experience and with age, um, sometimes it becomes more your memories of things, but everything I do is based on what I see. 
and I don't know, it might be you're walking along somewhere and you suddenly didn't mean to see it. You see a flicker of light out of the corner of your eye on a green leaf or something. You think, oh, it isn't that it's that tree, it's the atmosphere that that tree is making that I want to interpret. Or sometimes it's hard work and you get up in the morning and you think, I know I'm going to do something now, what am I going to do? And you actually force yourself and you assemble your bunch of flowers or your still life or you look at the drawings that you've made and you actually set yourself down as a sort of task. It isn't always inspiration, it's a lot of jolly hard sweat. You set down as a sort of task to interpret, to get your canvas covered and then with the flow it'll probably change and it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. What, what kind of materials do you like to use in palettes? Um, well, I had a broad training and I really um, can use anything, I think. Um, one of the trainings we had was to try to keep always a notebook uh, busy with ideas. You always carry a notebook on your bag and I remember Jack always had his little notebook and he'd be writing down a line of poetry. So that's one of the reasons we got on, I think. We were always uh, taking notes. And I did uh, engraving. Uh, and so I could draw. I would paint uh, from watercolours. We learned that. We would paint in gouache, that is watercolours with a, a base that you can colour. Watercolours are all transparent. Gouache is one way you can make build up colours. We did uh, oil painting. And then later in life, this uh, dreadful thing came along called acrylics. And I had a go, but I've never taken to it really. It doesn't have the grace. It doesn't have the fine feeling on all the same smells, <laughs> painting in oils. And I also then through, um, I had done a little bit of sculpture when I was at art school, but it was when Jack died I needed to do something different. And I met by chance uh, a lovely lady from the Argentine who had her studio in Palma. And I went and did sculpture, and by another sequence of events, I got this wonderful commission to do two heads of a very famous Arab horse by a rich owner in Madrid. And I started finding that, after this long history of being a painter, the three dimension had something that I loved, and I loved the actual, there's much more in the actual, in sculpture, you can be busy mixing up the the clay and doing things. Painting is a little bit more abstract, but the sculpture has a really physical quality in it, which I enjoyed. And so um, I've had a lot of success with my sculpture, and I find that one thing balances the other. So do you, would you say it's about 50-50, sculpture to painting nowadays, or what's the balance like? It depends on the mood. Since I've come here, when I was in uh, Palma with, working with my friend, she had a beautiful studio and I used to go, it was nice getting out of my own flat and going and working with her. And I did a series of dances for a friend who had some money in Paris and they were his daughters and these are the bronzes that you see. Um, I had quite a lot of commissions for horses because obviously my love of ponies held me instead. And if you know about horses, you have to have a horse done by somebody who understands horses. It's surprising what a giveaway it is to people who don't. And I 
haven't done so much sculpture here because I find finally the mess of clay and cement in my rather small apartment is um, less easy to contend with than actually getting your palette out and your oil paints. You seem to have, you seem to have quite a warm palette often in the pictures I've seen of yours. Is that your preference? I think I was always called this. I was one of the things that enchanted me, I think, was always colours. There was possibly, it was be a snatch of colour in, in something, in a landscape, as I said, or in these wonderful colours that I saw when I first visited Greece, of the intensity of the blue. And I think to be a colourist is also something that you are given as a talent, but it is also that you can educate yourself. It is actually a talent that needs to be cultivated, and I went really for colour in my development as an artist. I, I love colour, and finding how it works one colour against the other and how it changes. Could, could you describe your style, your, your painting style? Well, I was brought up on the love of the classics, going to the National Gallery, but I think the particular thing that was obviously like many, many paintings that I was bowled over by the Impressionists. And then I went to Paris when, uh, when I was quite young and was taken to the Louvre and saw also the post-Impressionists. And I realized that if I wanted to uh, go further in my art, one must never become too addicted to one because it's very, very dangerous to try to copy. So maybe on occasions I would try to copy a little bit, but it never worked out. They always looked like my paintings. I had a great love for a painter who was a first impressionist called Bonnard, and he did all these interiors. Um, and as I say, I loved the people that are so famous now, Gauguin, all these people. And I think they were all little things that were put into the object called the, the mixture of being an, art, an artist. And you use them and then you discard them as life goes by. So you, you found that you, you've taken those great artists and, and then you've just, you've just let them influence you, but it, You've created your own style. You, you take them and you take them as a goal, maybe as a god. And I think you, by looking and absorbing, I I think that you are stimulated and you can evolve. But you must not become too um, dependent on them. I remember, for instance, with my sculptures with Maria Isabel, I went to see somebody in Italy who became totally a god in the air for me in. Sculpture and artist is not. I think he's not so well known, but he is known, Marino Marini, and he is uh, a friend of mine. Actually, knew him. He died in the 1980s, and he is both back to the Etruscans, but he's a modern sculptor, and he actually influenced me a lot in my sculpture. Could you say anything about what you were trying to achieve or communicate? You mentioned um, a mood or an atmosphere or seeing a particular way the light plays on a, on a tree. Is, are, are, you, are you trying to convey just something visual or, or something more than that for your painting? I think possibly what I would say, Jack used to say to me, um, you must make it that somebody realises that they actually see things in the way that you do now. You show them something. And I think if I can say anything uh, of my development 
now is that most people or the youngsters they look at things second hand if you say I've seen a landscape they've seen it on a video they go out they spend half their time looking at their mobile phones they don't actually go and look at it and I think that what I'm trying to say is go and look go and stand still and look, don't look at a photograph, look at it and see what your reaction, and that is what I'm trying to simplify and show to people that the world, if we let it, is still very beautiful. We are letting it become ugly, I think, in many, for many reasons, but one of it is that we don't actually look and we just see, oh, well, it's making so much money or it's actually turning it into a, a place that produces 50 times more lettuces than it did before and people don't stop and look. Could you give any advice to aspiring artists, people who want to pursue art as a career? Because it's, it's tough, isn't it? Not, not the easy advice is, I think the advice is that you just have to go and do it and if you advice you have to be very determined, you have not to um, get diverted by commercial reasons. If you get uh, diverted to commercial ends, your, your work will become commercial and that maybe is what you want. But if you really want to show, I think it's this thing that you feel that you would like to, you have a secret world inside you and there's a part of you that says, I would like other people to know about it too. They would I would like them to see the world and I would like them possibly to share my experience of excitement of seeing things for the first time if I look at it <gasps> is it really like that that is absolutely amazing and my advice is for an artist if you want to do it you just have to go and do it and if you want to do it you have to work very very hard there is no other answer yes because there are artists we probably all know artists who they just struggle to sell sell their art so they have to take a different job and then that distracts them from their art, doesn't it? This is the one, or one of the many things that it was. I don't think it was easier, but you met other artists much more easily, I think, when I was first running around and also when I met Jack. And it was also this thing that the world was less easy to access than it is now. And so there were still wonderful places that hadn't run around um, getting higher prices, getting uh, chic cafes. There were really lovely places to visit. And I remember with the money that I made at the Medici Gallery and Jack was making, writing his next book from his publisher, it actually went a very long way because, for instance, Spain was much cheaper than England in those days. Now they've all become the same price. And if you make a bit of money in England and you come to Spain to to live, you're probably finding that it isn't enough because Spain has become, you know, it's, it's become globalised. One of the things for an artist is the problem of survival. If you're going to dedicate yourself to art and you don't have a success, do you have the courage to go on? Do you want to go on? Do you have the financial means to do it? It's not so easy to find a cheap place to go and live as it was decades ago. It does help, and but also you can go and find a cheap place to go and live, like Gokhan did in Tahiti, but you might find that you actually get sick, like Jack and I did in Turkey, for instance. We got very sick, that was the reason that we left. We got cholera. But that's another story. <laughs>
but uh, it's a double thing also. It's nice to be, if you're an artist, to meet other artists who are like you, so you don't feel alone in this quest for whatever your quest for self. And these places have often now become expensive. It's a big problem. There isn't an answer. Just finally, um, do you have any exhibitions you'd like to talk about or any, any plans for the future? Yes, um, I think my plan for the future is to just to keep uh, continuing to work in my modest way. I've got a, actually at the moment a couple of paintings in the Palacio de Congreso, which is this uh, group um, show. I am thinking uh, and I hope to be having an exhibition, haven't got the date yet, in of all places San Rafael. One of the things which is going to, or has come into my painting, is uh, not illustrations of, but pictures of India. And I think my project is to get a collection of paintings of India, which I have already done, but um, I shall continue. Good luck with that. And thank you thank so you much for much. Uh, sharing your story with us today. Well, I hope I've managed to share something that is a help to other artists. This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Vas a las tres, aparece el